So last week we talked, uh, last week of course was Easter and we talked about Jesus' big win, the resurrection, right? Uh, as Pastor Brandon said, it's really the credential uh, for his uh, uh, kingship. This is somewhat chronologically backwards, but today we're going to talk about the opposite. We're going to talk about Jesus' big loss. So Philippians uh, chapter 2, and we're going to look at the first eight verses this morning. And um, let's ask God for his help before we dive in. Thank you, Lord, for leaving a record of yourself, who you are, what you're like, who we are, what we're like, your call on our lives, and your promises to us and what you've offered to us. We're so grateful. When we assess ourselves, we never assess right. We either think too much of ourselves or too little of ourselves. It is impossible for us to think rightly because the thinking part of us has been as damaged by sin as anything else. And when you come to us, you tell us that we are worse than we could ever imagine. And yet, as Tim Keller says, more loved than we could ever hope for. And the gospel puts that all into perspective. We're so awful, we're so terrible that Jesus had to die. We're so loved that Jesus had to die. And I... We just want to say thank you. Those of us who have been won by that love want to say thank you this morning. And I'm going to pray for those who as of yet have not been won that love, they've, by that love. They've not, they've not seen it as loving that Jesus died for them. They've not seen it as the revelation of their own need. I pray for them, Lord, that you would open blinded eyes to see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And perhaps today would be their day of new faith. I pray that you would help us, Lord. I pray that you would speak uh, this morning uh, through me when you can and in spite of me when you must, and that we would see Jesus high and lifted up. We pray in his name. Amen. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Philippians 2. We're going to start with the second half of this passage this morning, and then we're going to read the front verses a little bit later. So we're going to start at verse 5. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Incomparable humility. Last week we talked about Christ's incomparable victory. And in this passage, we see the king humbling himself for the church. He humbles himself for the church. Now, you might say, well, Jesus humbled himself for everyone, and that would be true. But in the final day, when all of the, 
uh, all of the accounts have been finalized. Only the church, only the people of God, only Christians will be the recipients, the beneficiaries of this amazing work of Christ. The king humbled himself for the church. Now let's look back, beginning of verse 5. We can tell that there's going to be something for us, not only in these verses, but the verses prior, because Paul sets it up by saying, you must have, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had, and then he goes on to explain the attitude that Christ Jesus had. Verse 6, though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Now, Jesus became Jesus in the womb of Mary and in a feeding trough in Bethlehem. But as the son of God, he had always existed, always existed. Jesus had a start, but the Jesus, the son of God, had no beginning. Look back at John chapter 1. John chapter 1. The very first verses... In the beginning was the word in the beginning the word already existed. Now you can read down through this text and find out that who John means by the word is Jesus. In the beginning, the word already existed, the Son of God already existed, the Word or the Son of God was with God, and the Word was God. And this is fascinating to me passage. It gives us insight who this Messiah was who gave his life for me. Always existed in the beginning, which he means by the beginning, not a finite point in time, but God's always existed. So the beginning is simply a way of speaking about God at the start. And Jesus, or God the Son, is there as well. He already existed. He was with God and he was God. He existed in the beginning with God. And, and not only was he God and not only was he with God, but he created, verse 3, he created everything God created everything through the Son of God, and nothing was created except through the Son of God. So everything that exists, exists because the Son of God created it along with the Father. And this is why it is so uh, abhorrent, so awful, so blasphemous that human hands that Jesus crafted pinned him to a cross, murdered him. Reduced his back to hamburger. The hands that Jesus, the Son of God, made. He was with God. He was God. And he created with God. Just think about that. And yet he didn't hold on to this position. He didn't cling to this vaunted position that he had with the Father. He's... He's a king, he's on the throne, he has a scepter, the angels bow down to him, he's made all of this, the animals and humanity bows down to him. Let me just go down a side road for a second. So if you talk with people who uh, are not followers of Jesus, they say, you have such a weird teaching, and we, we hear this from uh, Muslims, for example, you have such weird teaching, you Christians. You teach there are three gods, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We say, no, we teach there's one God. We believe like the Jewish people do. 
Deuteronomy 6.4, the, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We worship one God, but he has manifested himself. He continues to manifest himself in three persons. Not three things, not three facets, but three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so in the beginning of creation, <clears throat> we see Genesis chapter 1. The Father says, let us make man in our own image. And you look, look around and say, who's he talking about? Hasn't made anybody yet. There's no people yet. Let us, who's us? The fellowship of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And you see, even in the beginning of Genesis, it says the Spirit of God, the Spirit was hovering over the waters. And so it, the Bible has this magnificent picture at times, it's so confusing because at times, the Bible deliberately blurs the lines between the three persons of the Trinity and other times makes uh, very hard distinctions. And so we see the baptism of Jesus, and there's the Father speaking from heaven, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then we see the Holy Spirit descending in some fashion like a dove onto Jesus and the very hard contrast between the three persons. Now, what's interesting is that God the Son knew, apparently from all eternity, that he, had he was going to one day have an assignment to leave all this behind that he had with the Father and come to earth for us, like us. Some of you have had to wait months for a surgery that you needed and the, the thought, the prospect of it coming up is just the, the waiting is the worst. Can you imagine knowing from way back what you were going to do one day, the suffering you were going to endure and the delight and the approval and the worship that you gained in heaven all going to be laid aside? Let me take you to a verse in Revelation 13 to show you where this comes from. It's one of the most startling verses, I think, in Scripture. Revelation 13, verse 8. Uh, the middle of verse 8. <clears throat> they are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life. The book of life contains the names of all believers of all time. They are the ones whose names were not written in the book of life that belongs to the Lamb. And Lamb is probably capitalized in your Bible because it's a reference to Jesus. Belongs to the Lamb who was slaughtered. See that next word? Before the world was made. You say, wait a minute. Jesus was killed thousands of years after the world was made, right? Right? He died roughly 30 A.D. So what's this mean? It means that God had his plans done long before he made this universe. And Jesus, as a sacrifice, was central to that plan. Jesus knows what's ahead of him for all this time. He has all this glory in heaven. He has all this adulation in heaven. He has all this worth, this majesty, he's, he's it, <laughs> along with the Father in heaven. And yet Paul tells us that this time comes when 
he gives up his divine privileges. He didn't stop being God, but when he came to earth, there were things that, there were uh, powers that he didn't access while he was here on earth. So for example, when he stood on the, on the banks of the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, he was there. He wasn't in Syria. He was there. He wasn't in the Philippines. He was at that particular spot and wasn't somewhere else. And yet the Bible teaches us that God is omnipresent. He is everywhere at once. He's, he's little like a president might be, puts his wealth in a blind trust during the four years that he's president. So Jesus comes to earth. He puts some of his divine powers in this blind trust. Doesn't, doesn't stop being God, but for a season, he doesn't access some of these powers. And you look at the words that are used, the verbs that are used, verse 7, he gave up, this is all voluntary, he gave up his divine privileges, he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, verse 7 and then verse 8, he humbled himself, all voluntary. But that next phrase you ought to highlight in your Bibles. Every time you come across a phrase like, in obedience to God, he obeyed God. He said yes to God. You ought to highlight that. You ought to underline it because this is the call on our lives. Not because by it we are made right with God, but because by Jesus' sacrifice, he has made us right with God and thus we are now his servants. We live for his glory. We, get, we live for his fame. And even the Son in obedience to God, died a criminal's death on a cross. Listen, if you're watching online or if you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, you're not a follower of Jesus. It may be because you're young yet, you just haven't gotten to the point of making that choice. It may be because maybe you're like me, I got baptized at 11, I got saved at 25. That's not how it's supposed to normally work. And so maybe you've made a profession of faith. If anybody looks at your life, they would really raise questions about whether or not you know Christ. Or maybe you're just curious about Christianity and you either tuned in this morning or you're here this morning. Maybe you came to a service last week and decided to come again. I want you to think about this. If somebody saved your life at the price of theirs, my guess is that you would feel connected to them the rest of your life. There would be a, a memory in your life about that person, maybe you didn't even know them, that would always haunt you. And I'm talking about someone who would give their life for your physical life, knowing full well that one day you're going to die. Imagine someone giving their life for you so that you can have not just 20 years yet, but an eternal life. And that's what Jesus did for you. And he did it long before you recognized him, long before you said yes to him. The Bible tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
And he didn't do that, that simply because it was an assignment. He did it because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The king humbled himself for the church. And you can be part of the church, not by becoming an official member of a church, but by giving your life to Jesus Christ. Now let's back up and read the first four verses that we bypassed initially. Verse 1. Now remember, Paul is speaking here to a church, a local church. It could be just like Keystone. It's a church in Philippi in the early days of the church. In a town like Philippi, probably, but you only had one church. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Now you're going to read in the NLT, we have, in the verse 1 and 2, we have five sentences. But the really, in the original text, it's only one single sentence. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? In other words, are you encouraged by being a follower of Christ? You experience any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Holy Spirit? Let me put in a shameless plug here for the couple of messages in the Holy Spirit. I told one of the pastors on Thursday night, I said, I'm not a charismatic, but I've become more and more convinced over the last five, eight years that as a people of God, we're missing a lot. We're missing a lot because we have the Holy Spirit primarily as a doctrine, not primarily as God in us and his power being manifested in us day in and day out. And so hope you'll come back for those couple of messages. That's what he's talking about here. Fellowship together in the Spirit, both the fellowship with the Spirit in your life as well as the fellowship with other believers in the church in your life. Are your hearts tender and compassionate? In other words, have you been shaped and molded by the Holy Spirit so that you're, there's a tenderness toward other people, there's a compassion exhibited toward them? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. He's talking about the church, the body of Christ. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. And then he says, you must have the same attitude that, Jesus, that Christ Jesus had. The king's people, this is the message of these four verses, I think, that the king's people humble themselves in the church. If you are, I think the first two verses, Paul's saying, if you are enjoying the benefits of being born again, if, if you are experiencing in your life the benefits of knowing Christ, then I want you to become this kind of person. I want you to act this way with one another, behave toward one another this way, think about one another this way, exhibit these kinds of traits among one another. If Christ is encouraging you, if he comforts you, if you have this fellowship with the Spirit together, and if you're tenderhearted and compassionate, then he says, make me happy. And really, that's not his point. That's not his game plan. His game plan is, I want you to make your Savior happy. I want you to delight your Savior. And just like Jesus was obedient to his Father, I want you to be obedient 
Because if you do these things, you will make him happy. You will bring delight, uh, delight to him. And I think he's talking, I, I, I think we could get rid of most of the rest of the New Testament and still have the basis for how a glorious church functions. I'll call it a great church this morning. Paul says there at the end of the verse 2 that a great church loves one another, agrees wholeheartedly with each other, and works together with one mind and purpose. Now, my guess is that if we simply got 10 of us together after the service today and we threw out a particular topic, that eight of us would think eight different things and the other two would think the same thing. I mean, we just have a lot of different ideas and opinions, right? Even about, even about non-important things, right? But also about some eternal things. One of the amazing things, uh, and really one of the reasons I'm in the Evangelical Free Church rather than some other um, denomination is because we tend to major on the majors and give room for disagreement on the minors, on the secondary issues. And when I was looking for where God might be calling me as a church, I, 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 was, I was hungry to find a church that says, the word of God is non-negotiable. This is the truth of God. And we believe these things about salvation. And we believe these things about the church and the Holy Spirit. But this and this and this, we, we allow some latitude and flexibility in these other things. And so I ended up in the free church by conviction. And so in the free church, one of the things that I've observed now being in it 30 years is that there can be a lot of robust quarreling. And at the end of the day, everybody goes home arm in arm because we agree on the central things. And I think that's what Paul's talking about here. The basic things that the Bible teaches us, that we, we are in agreement about those things. We're agreeing wholeheartedly. We talk about uh, the mission that Christ has given us this morning. We agree wholeheartedly that we are called to go into all the world, preach the gospel, that we're to reach Jerusalem, yes, but also Judea and also Samaria and also the ends of the earth, especially the unreached peoples of the world. I think it was Oswald Smith who said, no one has the right to hear the gospel twice when so many have yet to hear the gospel once. So we can agree on those kinds of things. We agree that you must be born again only through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ. If you are counting on something else getting you to the presence of God one day, you are misguided. If you are counting on your niceness to get you to heaven one day, you are misguided. If you are counting on the blood of Jesus Christ and your righteousness, your goodness after that to get you to heaven, you are misguided. This is the fruit of Christ's work, not an additional piece to the formula. And you can say amen to that if you believe that. I want you to agree wholeheartedly with each other. I want you to love one another. That's a little harder, to love one another. And work together with one mind or purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. 
Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. I want to focus on that last sentence. Because I don't think the American church in 2021 has the same kinds of problems as the church in Philippi in AD 55. I think we would say that we love people in the church in general. My fear is that we think that and say that the way we would say that about, let's say you met a, a fellow named Brian one time. You met him at a party or a get-together, you met him at your club, met him once. And if someone asked you, do you love Brian? You'd say, yeah, sure. You see him buzz past you in the car one day, hey, it's Brian. You love Brian? Sure. What we mean by that is we don't have any hard feelings towards him. you imagine a marriage holding up on the basis of you don't have any hard feelings towards each other? So the question is, for a church in which people see each other once a week for 75 minutes, we're passing like we are on the road. In what sense of the word love do we actually love each other? In what sense of the word or the phrase, don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too, can we say as a contemporary church that we really do that? Now, I think you can if you're part of a care group. I think we can if you hang around after the service and introduce yourself to some other people and find out a little bit about their life and maybe even know enough to be able to say, can I pray for you right now? I think we can if we serve one another in love. There are some people in the nursery right now serving some of your children. There are some people in the twos and three-year-old class serving some of your children. There's some people in the senior high and junior high serving some of your children. And we love when other people serve us, don't we? Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. I wonder, Christian brother and sister, how many of us can say, I take an interest in others and the others goes that far beyond our own little circle of our family and our close friends. You see, Paul understood that the church was a gift to individual Christians. It's meant to be a gift. And isn't it true we've discovered the magnitude of that gift when we've been in trouble? What we sometimes forget is that other people are in trouble too and need us. When we think about 
participating in something that the church, it, listen, if I'm coming off of a, as a scold, I, I, please rebuke me after the service. I prayed this morning that God wouldn't let me do that. But I've sensed the spirit saying, I, I want you to push harder than maybe you sometimes do. When you think about an event that the church has, I do the same thing. Isn't it true that we often think about, what is it going to mean to me? Do I really want to be there? But do we, other than simply look at our calendar, do we ask God, do you want me there? Might there be somebody there that night that I'm going to end up sitting beside that God wants me to talk to, that God wants me to listen to, that God wants me to pray for, that God wants me to remember in the weeks ahead. I got a phone call here at the office on Friday. I was the only one in the office and bounced around a couple of phones till it got to me. And that's a guy from Southern California. And he was trying to track down someone who used to be a, 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 missionary, a missionary that we supported. And he was trying to track her down because this man, this caller, his wife was in a car accident with a drunk driver 10 days ago, and she's still in a coma, has 152 stitches in her head. And he says, we've been married 49 years, and he said, I, I can't get through 10 minutes without crying. And it really hit home. I'm, Betty and I are married 48 years, and I think about what that would do to me. And he said, I'm trying to, I'm trying to track Larissa down because she would want to know about this. And he said, I'm leaving messages, and I, I can't get through. She doesn't respond. And I said, well, tell me what phone number you have. He, he said, is she a member of your church? I'm like, no, she lives in California. <laughs> I said, but I think I have a good number for her. I said, tell me what your number is. And he told me, I said, no, that's not a good number. I said, I just texted her about a month ago. I said, here's the number. And I said, could I pray for you? And he said, I'd love that. Now, I wasn't planning to handle that call on Friday. I wasn't expecting that. But I was there when that call came in. And for a number of reasons, I might not have been. You see, as part of the body of Christ, you and I, we're, we're an integral part of a glorious Christ-bought puzzle. And Jesus needs us to be available to each other. And that means doing more than just tiptoeing in the church just zipping in and zipping out it demands us saying I want to be part of the church look hey some of you folks have been part of the church for decades but it's in and out do you know anybody by name do you know anybody beyond than simply their name are you in a care group? You know, in a church of, I don't know how many we are anymore, but let's say hundreds, it's really tough. You can't get to know the whole church once you're beyond about 100 people. 
So you get to know some people, few people, but always available to all people. And in our culture and in our day, in the American culture, increasingly the church has become of little importance. And everything else become of greater and greater importance. And I think that's going to contribute to when suffering comes, you've heard me say this again and again, overnight, we're going to lose 40% of the church. I'm not talking about Keystone, the American church. Overnight. Unless we start to think differently about the church, its importance to Jesus, its importance to ourselves, and its importance to others. And me no longer thinking about church as a consumer, but as a blood-bought child of God and a member, I don't care whether it's official or not, a member of the body of Christ. In a great church, members are humble, they value others more than themselves, they take interest in others. And it's not for perks, it's not to make ourselves look good. Andrew Murray, in his book, Humility, the Journey, toward holiness said our humility before God has no value except that it prepares us to reveal the humility of Jesus to our fellow men. About the year 125, a Christian by the name of Aristides, he was a philosopher, tried to convert the emperor Hadrian. It was an ancient document they found in late 1800s in uh, monastery that Betty and I were in in, in the Sinai Peninsula, St. Catharines. It's called the Apology of Aristides, the Philosopher. And what he did was compare Christianity to Judaism and compare Christianity to paganism and compare Christianity to the Greek uh, worship of their gods. And he tried to show the superiority of Christianity based on how its people conducted themselves. This is what he wrote. Falsehood is not found among them. And they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem. In other words, when this was a different day than today. So widows oftentimes were in dire straits financially and otherwise. From widows, they do not turn away their esteem. In other words, the church takes care of their widows. And to deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. They rescue children who are abused and mistreated and neglected. It's like some of you do. We have a lot of uh, people here who have taken foster kids in. Praise God's name for your kindness to that. Uh, you've adopted children. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. Uh, that's another. I, I've watched for these last almost three decades. The generosity of this church is second to none. Uh, the amount of money that you have shelled out over the years to help people in need is staggering. The amount of money that you've given that we have available now is staggering. 
And as a pastor, I know a lot of other quiet stories where people have come along other folks and slipped money into their pockets or given them a check. 2,000 years of that. And when they see a stranger, they take him in their, to their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God. In other words, you're not my brother or my sister because we're related, but because we're family of faith. And whenever one of their poor passes from the world, dies, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. Make sure he has the money for a proper burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity and if it is possible to redeem him and they set him free. Many places in the world, it's still true that if you're in prison, you don't get served prison food. The only way you eat is if your family brings food to you at the prison. And this would have been true in this day. And so the people in the church bring food to you in the prison. They bring food to your family. They take care of your family's needs. And if, if a bribe or a fine is what's necessary to get you out of prison, they pull their funds and they do that and if there is among them any that is poor and needy and if they have no spare food they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food wait what (laughs) you mean if somebody doesn't have money that they can help other poor people with for their needs they'll fast for two three days and then give them their food or the money that they would have used to purchase their food for those days? Really? Make no mistake about it. If you read the letters of the New Testament, the church that Jesus had in mind is radical. Crazy radical. They observe, continue in Aristides, They observe the precepts of their Messiah with much care. In other words, living obediently, living justly and soberly as the Lord their God commanded them. Unbelievers tell us all the time, you're just a bunch of hypocrites. And I say, well, why wouldn't we? Sin has damaged everything in me. It's damaged my thinking. It's damaged my emotions. I still sin. That's why I need Jesus. Bound to be hypocrites. I always tell people, we got room for one more hypocrite in our church. But could, could what's really behind that accusation be the critic's experience with Christians that's not been marked by love. And and listen, children, children, give me an ear. Learning love starts at home. Learning love starts at home. If, If you want to grow up to obey God's command to love one another. 
the best place to practice that is with your brothers and sisters at home if they're five or eight or ten. Great place to practice it because they're obnoxious, right? Let's be honest. They're obnoxious, right? And that's why God's given them to you. He's training you because you're going to run into more obnoxious people in your life. And if you can love these little brats at home, you can love anybody. And the same is true for us adults. We, le- we, learn- we should be learning to love in the church. That that spills out over into the world. It doesn't trust us and doesn't want anything to do with our Savior. Whatever love we show the lost world is exercised, demonstrated, and nurtured at the church in the body of Christ. I don't know what God has for you this morning. I'm done. Now it's up to God. What was he saying to you this morning? Was it about priorities? Was it about time? Was it about self-preoccupation? Was it about ministry, using your gifts? Was it about deciding on a church? Some people still like to float from church to church to church to church. I don't see any picture of that in the New Testament. You land somewhere. It might be here. It might not be here. I always tell people... If you're looking for a church, you need to be praying about it as much, maybe more, than visiting churches. Because if, for example, you come here and this is not the place for you, you're just going to be a pain in the neck. And conversely, if you come, go somewhere else and God has this church for you, there's going to be a, a gap where God wants to use you. And so, may the Holy Spirit speak to you individually about what he wants you to do. And some of you might say, <clears throat> I don't really, <laughs> let's say God speaks to you in the next two, three weeks about some aspect of this. And you say, I'm not, I, re- I don't really like that. There was a song that I used to listen to. <clears throat> when our children were kids. It was on the radio, on the Christian radio. And I love the message. God does not compel us to go. Some of you remember this. He just makes us willing to go. And this much I know is true, both from the scriptures and from experience, is that when we say yes to God, that's the sweet spot. Therein is where we find joy. And if you say to what God asks you to do, I can't do that, you're probably right. To be honest with you, I can't preach every Sunday. I still get butterflies. And last Sunday, the first Sunday back preaching after three months, not being the pulpit, I thought, I told Betty uh, Sunday morning, I'm really nervous. I'm not sure I can pull this off. And that's a good thing because that's a reminder that it's not I but Christ, not I but Christ. If you can do it in your own strength, it's probably not going to be God glorifying. But Christ in you, hope of glory, he can do anything. 
And so as we close and invite the worship team back up, I want to pray for all of us that God would speak. Father, um, I love the church. I love this church, but I love the church that Jesus bled for and bought. And I don't know about anybody else, but whatever days of my life are left, I want to invest it in the church. And my prayer would be that every child of God, whether here this morning or watching online, would, whether it takes days, weeks, months, or years, come to love the church, to love Jesus' bride. I don't know how we can love the groom and not love the bride. And that that love would produce a kind of selflessness, serving others, listening to others, praying with others, getting with others. And that you would cure the American church once and for all of this notion that it's me and Jesus and that's the end of the story. And to really see the church as the glorious gift that it is. And that for everyone here, Lord, if you have a special message for them in these next few weeks, make it plain. Don't let other drum beats drown it out. And then make us willing to go and do whatever it is and be whoever it is you've called us to be and do in Jesus' name. Amen.